The following podcast is part of a certified educational activity titled Leveling Up Our RCC Care Strategy, Real-World Translation of Key Evidence Across Treatment Settings. Access the entire activity and complete the post-test at peerview.com forward slash DJA860. Downloadable slides and practice aids are also available. I want to introduce you uh, to our panelists in just a moment here, and we'll, we'll introduce them as we go through the various presentations. So our goals for today, share the latest efficacy and safety data for approved therapies for RCC to really personalize care for the disease and also to equip you with approaches to mitigate and manage side effects associated with therapy. I'd like to introduce Dave McDermott, who's the Chief of Medical Oncology at Beth Israel, um, really a leader in the area of immunotherapy for real cell carcinoma and melanoma, who's going to walk us through first-line choices for advanced RCC. Dave? Thanks, Monty. Glad to be here. Thanks for the organizers, and it's good to see all of you in the same room again, which is great. Um, this is the second week in a, weekend in a row that we've been here in Nashville for a kidney cancer meeting last weekend was the Euramigos meeting. This weekend we're performing at IKCS, and who knows, maybe next weekend I'll be at the Grand Old Opry, you know. <laughs> but I'm here to talk about first-line therapy, um, and we've seen a lot of progress over the last 10 years in the treatment of advanced kidney cancer. Uh, this is a slide created by uh, Jim Shea talking about the advancements over the years, the black being the year of cytokine therapy where outcomes were pretty poor. The major, one major advance came where VEGF therapy was introduced to the clinic and outcomes be began to improve with targeted therapy. The implementation of PD-1 blockade first in the salvage setting and then moving up into the uh, first line setting in combination with other agents has made a huge improvement in our patients' outcomes, not just in long-term survival, but some patients living uh, free of treatment in remission. And he looks towards a golden age, which I guess doesn't seem like it's that far from now, where we might have even better outcomes with newer therapies, which we'll talk a little bit about today. So you're probably all familiar with these trials. There have been several trials in the frontline space, all with similar control arms, which is the old standard of care here, sunitinib. Um, and all with PD-1 backbones um, with different combining partners, and we'll talk about all of this data. There's a lot to talk about. We'll try to get through it uh, quickly and reasonably, but to me, the main message I like to get across when thinking about decision-making in the front line is, you know, it, it has to be very patient-focused. There has to be a lot of discussion with the patient about what their wishes are, what their goals are, and then you talk about trade-offs. Um, because these approaches are all effective therapies, but they have different pluses and minuses, which we can talk about and hopefully help you tailor to your patients in the future. So this was starting first with the VEGF PD-1 trials. This was the first uh, pivotal trial to report out so-called Keynote 426 study, which was pembrolizumab and exitinib. Um, here, it will have very similar themes, very good early benefit on the early endpoints like response rate, median progression-free survival, and early survival signal was seen in this trial that led to the approval of this combination. Over time, some of those signals have not been as strong. When you look at longer-term outcomes, you see essentially the shape of some of those curves Unfortunately, a large percentage of patients who benefit early do start progressing, and we're going to talk a lot today about what to do when they progress, and there are some new options there. 
um, but also survival, you know, clearly improving. You know, median survival in the era of cytokine therapy was close to 12 months, and here we're looking at 48 months, so about four times improvement in survival. Similar story when the combining uh, the VEGF-TKI is cabozantinib here combined with a PD-1 antibody nivolumab in the so-called Checkmate 9ER story as trial. You see clear improvements in those early endpoints like response rate and progression-free survival and um, survival with nevo-cabo compared to sunitinib, almost a doubling of progression-free survival. And you see that, you know, the median overall survival of once again, you know, close to 50 months with nevo-cabo. Here, one interesting, um, you know, aspect to this is the, the dose of cabo was reduced in this study to 40 milligrams, which makes it uh, relatively tolerable for many patients, which I'm, Monty is often uh, focusing on, which is very important, particularly when patients are going to be on treatment for many years at a time. Um, so that was, that was a modification that, that helped the patients on this study. Um, the, the last one to report out was the CLEAR trial. This is pembrolizumab plus lymvatinib. Uh, once again, you know, very impressive early endpoints with high response rates, medium progression-free survival, um, very encouraging overall survival at the final analysis at four years. You know, with all of these agents, there are issues with side effects because you have to be on um, these drugs consistently for the effect to continue with the VEGF-targeted agents. We'll talk about toxicity and toxicity management what, uh, which can be a challenge uh, with these agents, but because this led to dose reductions and dose modifications on this trial, which may have impacted some of the results, but excellent efficacy data here. And sort of in summary, you know, we've, we've talked about overall survival, we've talked about you know, median progression-free survivals, which tend to favor the VEGF-TKI combos over the dual IO combos. But let's talk a little bit about IOIO or PD-1 VEGF. You know, what are the pluses and minuses of this regimen? Well, on the downside, you see less early effect with these agents in combination compared to sunitinib. Um, not as high response rates, not as long progression-free survival. But with time, and now we have over five years of follow-up, you see a different shaped curve, both in the intent-to-treat population and in the ITT populations here where the curve starts to level off for overall survival, and we'll talk about progression-free survival and a plateau forming on those curves. And also in, in the favorable risk population, which was not the main focus of this study, you can see the beginnings of a crossing of the curve, meaning clearly sunitinib improved survival over ipinevo early, but maybe not late. Um, and that's an interesting thing which we can talk about if we have time. And as I mentioned before, progression-free survival once again, a lot of early progression on this study, not as good disease control early when you don't give VEGF more. PD is best response, but towards the tail of the curve, there seems to be a flattening. Those patients are alive. They're not progressing. Some of them are off drug. And another exciting thing we see with all of these regimens is complete responses. Here you see complete responses for Checkmate 214, but you see them in all of these trials. Why are complete responses important? Well, they're very encouraging for patients. And in general, the deeper response, the more likely it's going to last after you stop treatment. And some of these patients can go on to have um, remissions and improvements in quality of life because you can pull off the drugs and they can uh, continue on without therapy.
So here are some just thoughts on, as I mentioned, the trade-offs of these approaches. They definitely have pros and cons. They all improve overall survival. With dual IO, you have long follow-up and you have durable responses out there. And there are some patients who can stop treatment and still be in response, which translates to improvement in quality of life. But as we'll talk about in a second, there's a, a significant likelihood of you know, adverse events that are immune-related, probably a doubling of the severity, uh, you know, of the severe grade three and four adverse events. So you have to have a team that's ready to manage those side effects, not just in the short term, but for some patients in the long term. And once again, disease control, at least early, is not as good. So patients with uh, symptomatic disease probably need VEGF blockade as part of their regimen. Whereas with IOTKI, in some ways, it's the inverse. You see good disease control early, high response rates, and you know, less issues with severe IRAEs, but there are chronic toxicity issues which we need to monitor. But over time, those curves tend to sag. And what does that mean for the field? You know, if patients are looking for a long-term response, a durable response, like the one in the question, the, generally the IOTKI regimens may not produce that as much as the dual IO combination. So one of the ways we've tried to measure the pluses and the minuses of um, immune therapy is developing a model that partitions patient survival and looks at this time that patients are off treatment, the so-called treatment-free survival, because immune therapy can be associated with disease control that can last, but also side effects that can last. And that becomes a major issue for management for, for patients. We have to, as we develop newer, more complex regimens, two drugs, three drugs, maybe even more, you know, how do we know if we're pushing things too hard, creating more side effects as we try to aim to improve survival? So the treatment-free survival model tries to help us get at that by partitioning the survival into the time in purple here when patients are on therapy in blue when they're off their initial therapy, but in treatment-free survival, and in dark gray, they're alive on a secondary treatment. So some of these regimens do produce treatment-free survival. So when we looked at Checkmate 214, you compare Nevo-Ipi to Sinitinib. This is in the, and you've seen these curves already. Looking at survival, you see improvements in survival with Nevo-Ipi. Um, compared to sinitinib, as we talked about before, in the intermediate and poor risk, but you see almost a doubling of treatment-free survival. So this is data that you can use to talk to patients, and you can say essentially, you know, if you want to try nevo-ipi, you have twice as good of a chance of having severe immune-related toxicity if you try this based on this trial, but twice as likely to be alive and off treatment if you try nevo-ipi. And some patients will want to be aggressive once they know that. Other patients will be more reticent to take the risks, but at least this model allows us to measure those things um, as we go forward. And, you know, as we talked about before, the side effects often get, um, you know, less attention at these meetings. We tend to focus more on efficacy than toxicity. But as we're developing these regimens, as we're moving them earlier into the disease state, like adjuvant and neoadjuvant immune checkpoint blockade, managing toxicities is going to be a major issue. These side effects can affect any organ system. Essentially, anything that ends with an itis can happen with these drugs. Um, and slides like this are in some ways helpful because they talk about the different rhythms, the different patterns of how these agents are, uh, you know, produce side effects, what the timing of some of these side effects can be. But they leave an impression, which is in some ways false, that the side effects all go away. They're, that's not true. 
and patients often are living with permanent side effects for lifelong, depending. Now, that may not be as big of an issue if patients have metastatic cancer, because in that setting, the real toxicity is dying from the cancer. But as we bring these agents earlier to patients who may have been cured with medical, with surgery, for example, the management of side effects, the trying to predict who's going to run into trouble becomes a much bigger issue, which we need a lot of help from, from multidisciplinary um, folks, clinicians, physicians, nurses, the whole team needs to be involved in this care. Um, one of the things, as I mentioned about the immune therapy plus TKI therapy, in general, the severe side effects are not as great, but there are overlapping side effects that can be a challenge to manage. For example, if a patient presents with diarrhea and they're on Axipembro, you, you're not initially sure if the diarrhea is from the TKI or from the PD-1. So you you know, how do you manage that? Do you stop the exitinib? Most of us do that. And if the diarrhea gets better, then we don't give steroids. If it doesn't get better, then maybe we do. But it's that overlap, that chronic therapy that sometimes creates some issues in the clinic and requires education, not just of the team, but of the patients to report their symptoms. Because one of the key problems we run into a lot in clinic is patients who are having a side effect and they think, well, if, you know, just um, give it time, it'll go away. It almost never does without intervention. And it's those patients who don't call you right away that tend to get into the most uh, difficulty. Uh, just finishing up, you know, we have these debates about which is better, and my colleagues probably have different opinions than mine, which is terrific. But what we really need is head-to-head -head data. And this is the trial that's going to help us get there. This is Laurence's trial, the CARE-1 uh, pragmatic trial where she's taking up to 1,200 patients, so a very ambitious study, all treatment-naive, metastatic clear cell, intermediate and poor risk group, and essentially then stratifying them based on pdl one status. In general, tumors that are pdl one high tend to be more likely to respond to IO therapy, and then randomizing both those groups, pdl one high, pdl one negative, to either dual IO or IO-TKI therapy. And this will give us the answers that we really need Instead of doing cross-trial comparisons, we'll be doing head-to-head -head comparisons and hopefully be able to give people clear answers about the trade-offs of these approaches. So back to our case discussion, I think we have time. I have a minute and 13 seconds. How do you want to use it, Dr. Paul? Very, very well done. Excellent job, David. Thank you. Okay, good. Uh, terrific. Yeah. Fruitful use. Some of that for applause. Um, I didn't need the applause. <laughs> so, you know, several of us were here for a meeting last week hosted by these guys. You may have heard of them. Brian, Remy, Thomas, Powell's, I think they have a podcast. So they asked some easy questions last week at their meeting. This is going to be tough stuff here because I've got two really brilliant uh, guests up here on stage. So we're going to get to this case and we're going to do some permutations to make it a little bit more challenging. So this is a 70-year-old male patient. You can see here some of the details. Married with three children, eight grandchildren, enjoys a very active lifestyle, has low volume, indolent metastatic clear cell RCC. He has pulmonary metastases. And let's envision that this is something that you are in the mood to treat. Okay, we're not going to assume that these are just completely benign looking or that you can continue to watch it, but favorable risk nonetheless. Okay. And the patient says to you, Dr. McDermott, I do not want Nevo Ipi in this particular context. Which TKI IO regimen are you going to use and why? Oh, okay. You can only pick one. Well, and you right. can't choose clinical trial. Well, it's all right. So, 
I want to reject the question. <laughs> or I'll reject the choices. Because <laughs> first of all, and Laura Wood is, I think, right there, is that you, Laura? So she's, Cleveland Clinic would say, you watch this person, you don't treat them because they're asymptomatic, small volume disease, um, and you're only going to reduce their quality of life by treating them. You wait for at least another scan, you know, to get a sense of the tempo. So that's, that would be my first answer. But assuming I can't pick that as an answer, and I can't pick Ipinevo as an answer for reasons that are unclear to me, <laughs> or just PD-1, like this is the type of person we probably would give PD-1 alone. I feel like he's hedging a little bit, guys. What? No, no, I'm not hedging. I'm just going, yeah. oh, you're giving me a very you know, modified answer. So meaning, if you're saying, if this patient says, I don't want to deal with the increased risk of Ipi, right. I would say, let's just try PD-1. Okay. Either Pembro or Nevo. Um, and see how it goes. And we have, we have patients like this. Um, and oftentimes it, you can get a very good response. If you look at good risk in the HCRN trial, the response rate there was 50% with just Nevo um, in the Mike Atkins' trial. So there is a rationale for that. So that's what I would do if you were going to force me to pick. I, uh, you know, I'm not going to pick a, in good risk. There's no impact on overall survival with any of the VEGF TKI. So I, I refuse to answer Oh, okay. So he's not going to be difficult tonight. No, no, that's, uh, that's, uh, yeah. I'm just kidding. I don't know what the right answer, I honestly, I don't know what, you know what the right answer is? Laura's go for it. Why don't you answer the question there? Again, let, let's, let's make this a scenario where you observe the tumor kinetics you're seeing on three-month intervals. The disease is picking up tempo, but that patient is still favorable risk. You want to treat this patient. What are you going to give them? So I'm still going to go for a combination therapy. Uh, however, I won't answer your question in uh, how we'd select between the three regimens that are available and demonstrated uh, in the ITT population overall survival. I think um, um, Brian tend to say, choose one and use it well, and I think it's a, it's a good way of saying things. You can use axitinib pembrolizumab in this patient, you can use cabozantinib nivolumab, you can use lenvetinib pembrolizumab in this patient. Uh, the thing is, we have to be clear with the patient the fact that he will have side effect related to the TKI, plus the likelihood of developing immune-induced toxicity. Um, but the reason why I'm going for a combination therapy is that I want to achieve the CR that you reported on. Um, I want my patient to have basically uh, slowing uh, growing disease and, and changing the course of his disease. So I want to push back the um, progression-free survival in this patient, especially. And what we don't know is if this patient is able to achieve complete response, then I'm, I'm likely to uh, go for two years of therapy, but I will be um, stepping down the TKI quite promptly if the patient achieved a great response in the interest of the quality of life. Totally fair, totally fair. And, you know, I'll just take that one step further. Dave, you sort of alluded to this. I tend to use Cabo-Nevo in this context. I wasn't a criticism. many of the uh, reasons that you cited. No, 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 and, and that's totally fair. So we're going to, in, in the very short time we have left, make this interesting, okay? And we're going to turn this into an intermediate and porous patient. So let's assume that this patient has aggressive disease characteristics here, Okay. Uh, the patient walks in with multiple hepatic metastases with early onset following nephrectomy and so forth. Um, and you want to achieve disease control in this patient uh, because they've started to demonstrate perineoplastic syndromes, hypercalcemia, et cetera. So, Laurence, this patient comes to you to your clinic and says, Nurse Laurence, you know, you were associated with that Cosmic 313 study with Cambo, Nevo, and Ippi. Really want to get that. What do you think? Are you going to offer to, let's assume you're stateside so you can get this regimen. 
Okay, um, I don't think I would push my patient towards a triplet uh, regimen here. Um, depending on the symptoms and how the patient has, as you said, um, deterioration in his cl clinical performance status or not, uh, my decision will be between IOIO and IOTKI. So I would stick to a doublet. Uh, if my patient doesn't have threatening uh, metastasis, meaning to the bone, to the liver, I am quite comfortable offering both strategy, and this is the reason why we built Care One. Um, and here, I do explain to my patient that in one case, there is a TKI-related adverse event. In the other case, there is the IO-enhanced toxicity related to the doublet IO. It might be a patient for which I will consider nivolumab, ipilimumab. Okay. Okay. Very good. Dave, I'm going to uh, permute this question, this scenario, just a little bit. Let's say this patient walks into your clinic, okay? Mm -hmm. And this patient now has their PDL1 staining with them, right? Okay. Yeah. And you just, you know, commended Laurence on what I think is a very excellent study, CARE1. Um, they don't want to participate in a clinical trial, and their PDL1 staining is at 0%. Okay. You don't see any PDL1 expression in that tumor. Does that influence your decision making at all for this patient? Uh, no, I, I don't think so. I mean, could, because there's too many false positives, or false, in this case, false negatives. We do see responses in people or PDL1 negative. Um, the test is, enriches for response, but it doesn't guarantee a response, and the opposite is also true. So I would go with whatever. I mean, we obviously need to do better with biomarkers and kidney cancer, but. In a patient like this, in some ways, this is an easier answer than the first question, because yeah. in intermediate and poor risk, you have clear you have multiple trials that show clear survival benefit with all the VEGF TKIs. If this person has rapidly progressing disease, that's what we would give them. Very good. And so, you know, Laurence, your trial is predicated on PEL1 status. Dave just said there's a lot of false negatives with that. What do you think? If this patient walked into your practice, is that PEL1 staining going to influence you? So uh, as David highlighted, it's about the ability to enrich. And so I would consider a positive results towards um, an IOIO strategy, and that's the rationale for the statistical design of CARE1. I don't think in a PDL1 negative we can really answer the question. And, and so here I would more rely on how symptomatic is my patient. If my patient has symptoms, I need to turn that down. And then I'm reaching for a high response rate, those early endpoints that uh, David was referring to. You want to reach these, 30, these 50, 60, 70% of patients having significant tumor shrinkage, and then I would go for an IOTKI. Very good. So we're going to outline here treatment opportunities for varying histologic subtypes of RCC. I'm not going to spend a lot of time on this slide. Surely you've seen slides like this at other presentations, but non-clear cell kidney cancer, the bottom line here is that it's a very heterogeneous disease comprised of multiple subtypes, each with a very different underlying biology, and it represents in total about 25% of kidney cancer cases. If you look at current NCCN guidelines, again, these aren't incredibly prescriptive. They do cite clinical trials and cabozantinib as being preferred regimens. I'll point out here that cabozantinib doesn't carry a category one recommendation, so there's some latitude here to choose other regimens, such as lenvatinib and everolimus, nivolumab, cabonevo, pembrolizumab, sunitinib, and we have a whole host of other options that are useful in other specific, very specific circumstances as delineated there. Um, we've got actually mounting evidence in this setting across multiple TKI-based strategies. Uh, Laurence has contributed a lot to this area. Um, but if we look, for instance, at Tavazinib, this comes from a study that we really sort of dug out of the archives, a randomized discontinuation study of Tavazinib. But it provides some really interesting data. Pedro Barada just published this. Uh, he's now based out in Cleveland. 
what you see here is that tevastinib has a response rate in non-clear cell histologies of 21%. Uh, and it's not broken down here specifically by subtype, which you're seeing on the right are disease control rates. Um, but I would say, you know, respectable response rates with tevastinib there. We probably need some more contemporary evidence. PatMed is a study that, you know, I focused a lot of my early career on. Uh, and this is a comparison of cabozantinib against crizotinib and savalitinib with the sinitinib control arm. This study specifically enrolled patients with papillary histologies. We included both type 1, type 2, papillary NOS. We had some discussions around the fact uh, that that subtyping is kind of obviated in this day and age. Pyle Kapoor gave that great talk in some of the general sessions. What we saw here is that cabozantinib edged out sinitinib in terms of progression-free survival, nine months versus five and a half months. Slight advantage, although not uh, statistically significant in median overall survival. Response rate here seemed quite distinct, 23% versus 4%. And so then, you know, in more recent years, our attention has turned to seeing whether or not some of these great TKI IO regimens that we're using for clear cell disease could be applicable in the context of non-clear cell histologies. So, you know, you see here on the left-hand side some data for cabozantinib and atezolizumab. And rather than focusing on the cumulative response rates, I thought what might be more comparable is just citing the response rates in papillary uh, disease specifically. So what you see here is that within the 15 patients with papillary in this experience, the response rate's 47%. Uh, Joe Lee, formerly of Memorial Sloan Kettering, had this really nice paper in JCO that looked at cabonevo. Uh, and in that experience, what was really striking to me, although it is a larger series of patients, was that they came up with the exact same response rate in papillary of 47%. So it looks as though there's some contribution of IO there, although we're, we can't be quite sure about that. Bevacizumab and atezolizumab, I think we've kind of come to see this regimen underperform a little bit in renal cell carcinoma. And what you see here in the papillary subset of this non-clear cell study that my colleague at the Farger uh, grad, McGregor, reported out is a response rate of 25%. And this is a, a really terrific study now published in the Lancet Oncology by Laurence. Uh, that looked at lenvatinib and pembrolizumab. And I was really struck by this. So when you look at the waterfall plots, there are some really nice, deep responses. And I want to come back to this in the Q&A. Um, but if you suss out the responses in papillary RCC, 54% is the number that I came up with. Um, so where do we go from here? Well, Laurence is going to touch on contact three uh, in terms of the general overarching results from the study. We tried to incorporate patients with papillary RCC and non-clear cell histologies. Ultimately, I don't think that the numbers in this trial led us with anything that could be definitive around the relative contribution of I.O. SWOG 2200 is a very important study. For those of you investigators in the room who uh, are thinking about opening this, please do so. It's a trial comparing CABO versus CABO-Atezo in patients with papillary RCC, really predicated on our, uh, that JCO paper that we worked on that I cited before. Um, there's also an effort, and this is a tough thing to do, but to really focus on that subset of patients that have met alterations. And this amounts to roughly a third of patients with papillary RCC. Um, so this was the Savoie study that compared sinitinib and savalitinib. When you look at this randomized experience over here, this phase two experience, you can see that there's a difference in terms of response rates here uh, between savalitinib and sinitinib. I'll draw your attention to the bottom right. 27% with savalitinib versus 7% with sinitinib. So, you know, I certainly have some interest in seeing this particular strategy move further. So, you know, this particular study, Calypso, looked at the combination of savalitinib and dervalimab. You know, I thought this was impressive. If you look at the MET-driven population of patients here, you see a response rate of 57%. So this whole strategy of looking at MET-directed therapies is being assessed prospectively in what I think is a very ambitious study called Semeta 
which is going to look at sunitinib as a control arm versus durvalumab versus sabalitinib plus durvalumab. Uh, it's a very reasonable study, ambitious because they're really trying to select just those patients with papillary RCC with med alterations. I think practically speaking, that's kind of a tough thing to do um, in clinical practice, but um, uh, certainly I think the investigators have uh, sound principles in mind. Uh, now, some of the exciting data from this meeting focused on zanzalitinib, and I was really pleased to be able to share that with you today. Um, so this is a novel agent for renal cell carcinoma, and we, we posit that it works through inhibition of a spectrum of kinases, including TAM kinase, VEGF receptor 2, through meta-inhibition, through axle inhibition. I think that the clinical data, though, uh, that we presented today really sort of speaks for itself. You know, this is the stellar one experience that we reported out earlier today. Uh, we had a dose escalation cohort, which looked at a variety of solid tumors, and we really focused today on the clear cell RCC expansion cohort. And this is, mind you, in clear cell RCC, this is not a distillation of data in non-clear cell RCC, but I still think somewhat compelling. This was a subpopulation of patients with a very aggressive phenotype. You can see that 38%, 34% had liver and bone metastases, respectively. 41% of patients had three or more prior lines of therapy. Uh, more than half had gotten prior cabozantinib. And so that really, to me, makes this response rate of 38% all the more impressive. Disease control rate of 88%, so very few patients in this experience, just that one on the left there with primary progressive disease. And if you look at the experience by various subsets here, based on the receipt of prior cabozantinib, for instance, you see that if you exclude patients receiving prior cabozantinib, response rate is 57%. And that's not something I'm used to seeing in the salvage setting in renal cell carcinoma. If you distill a little bit further and just look at those patients that had gotten a prior VEGF TKI and exclude cabozantinib there, 63% in all patients deriving clinical benefit. And importantly here, Bernard had a good question around this from uh, the audience Three out of the four cabozantinib-exposed patients who responded to zanzalitinib had deceived cabozantinib due to disease progression. So I, I think there's something very different about this drug. The tox profile is something that we highlighted in my talk uh, today, and it certainly seems to be distinct from the other VEGF TKIs that we have in our arsenal currently. So lots of, I think, exciting efforts to further characterize the activity of zanzalitinib. Um, so for instance, there's a stellar O2 study, which I think uh, many of you are involved in, which is looking at Zanza plus Nevo, Zanza and Nevo Ipi, Zanza, Nevo, and Rella. They, we have that in the front line and in the second line setting. There's a non-clear cell study looking at either Zanza or Zanza plus Nevo as well, which I think is of interest. And I hope many of you will consider enrolling to this study. It's up and running right now with some vigor. This is the Stellar 304 study looking at various subsets of non-clear cell RCC. So this doesn't just include papillary, which I focused on before, but it really focuses on some diseases where there is really no standard of care established, unclassified. You heard today about translocation RCC. We really don't know what to do with many of these subtypes. This is a, a small study, 300 patients, and it's being conducted worldwide, randomizing patients to zanzalitinib nevo versus sinit. So with that in mind, we're going to jump back to the case discussion. I, I certainly invite you, Dave and Laurence, to ask me questions. In any case, we're going to consider this same 70-year-old patient, and let's say this patient had a biopsy of one of multiple pulmonary metastases that you saw in an initial set of scans. And as opposed to clear cell RCC, as we considered in the first scenario, this is a patient with intermediate or poor-risk papillary RCC. Um, so Laurence, let's, let's take away the option of clinical trial right now, if that's okay with you. Uh, I, I know that's what we would all go to first here on the stage, especially for non-clear cell. What would you consider for this patient? I'm going to take away the clinical trial, though. I think we need randomized data here. 
And so this is exactly what you've shown us, either to go for a biomarker selection strategy, and that's the SAMETA trial, but that's only one third of your patient that would be uh, eligible, or uh, moving on to your study, for instance, where you'll see the added value versus sunilinib single agent TKI of a potent VGF TKI plus one immune checkpoint inhibitor. And I think it's important because even in non-clear cell histologies, especially papillary, which is the most common, we need randomized data. So, so kudos to you because uh, you're, you're pushing the field forwards with randomized data in selected papillary RCC. So outside of a clinical trial, this is a patient for which I want to go for a systemic therapy. What we have to date uh, is, to some extent, non-randomized data. So I would go for an IOTKI regimen. Um, and this is a patient where I would go either for carbonivo or for lenvatinib pembrolizumab based on the ground of the data you've shared. Very good. And, and if it's okay, Lawrence, I'm going to stick with you because I thought your data set was very rich with some of the other subtypes as well. So can you maybe offer some comment on a subtype I really struggle with? Let's say the biopsy showed chromophobe RCC. What would you choose there? So for those of you that were in the room, I think Martin Voss did a great job answering that question this afternoon. Uh, we've moved from single-agent TKI, which basically worked as well as uh, in clear cell uh, RCC for chromophobe to, oh, chromophobe are not responding to single-agent IO. Uh, until recently, we were considering that IO played no role in chromophobe. This is not what we're seeing in lenvatinib pembrolizumab B61 study that you quote, uh, because we are seeing response in this subset of patients as well. So for a chromophobe RCC patient, I would either go for lenvatinib pembrolizumab or for lenvatinib everolimus, where we do have data, but in smaller number of patients. And this is definitely a patient for which I would like to request a profiling to see if we have any alteration on the mTOR pathway. I really like that answer. I think your, your paper in Lancet Oncology really kind of convinced me to sort of pivot towards LENPEM for the metastatic chromophobe patient. So thank you for that. Uh, Dave, as I said, all the easy questions were last week on your amigos. Only tough questions here. Okay. Um, so papillary patient, but you get that biopsy back and extensive sarcomatoid features as well. Papillary with sarcomatoid mixed in. What are you going to do for that patient? I'm almost certainly going to give that person a, a shot at Ipinevo first. Okay. Um, because it, it, so far our best biomarker for long-term outcome is sarcomatoid histology. Um, it's not specific. Most of that data comes from clear cell, not non-clear cell. But knowing that sarcomatoid features responds very well to checkpoints, I would give dual checkpoints first and then that doesn't respond, come back with a TKI. What do you think about that, Laurence? So uh, in France, we're very constrained to the label, okay? So I cannot use nivolumab, ipilimumab outside of clear cell. We have a study uh, that was uh, led by the German colleague named Sunny Forecast, for which we don't have the results yet, which is nivolumab, ipilimumab versus sunedinib, so basically the same thing as 214 in non-clear cell. And so hopefully we'll have the results of this study in the coming year, and that will help us to know if there is a role for nivolumab, ipilimumab within the non-clear cell space. Um, now, that being said, I do have a question for David, because some people consider that sarcomatoid on top of non-clear cell is not the same thing as sarcomatoid on top of clear cell. Would there be any biological behind to explain that? Yeah, I have only dealt with that situation once or twice in my career, so it, it doesn't come up a lot. Um, but it's often the sarcomatoid piece of whatever the primary histology is that becomes the metastatic problem. 
So it's in that scenario where I think you should at least give the patient a shot at dual checkpoints. But that, that presentation is very unusual. It's often very aggressive, particularly, for example, if someone has a chromophobe with, his, uh, with sarcomatoid changes, those patients almost always do really badly, really quickly. So it's something we need to understand more, partly by getting samples, not just from the primary, but from the METs, to understand what component of the tumor you're actually treating when you're treating the patient. Well, that's one of the reasons for that specific scenario. I like your data set so much because I've always thought that LEN had something special, you know, in the setting of chromophobe. And now with LEN Pembro as an option, based on your data, I think we can maybe utilize that in that setting. That's, this is a great discussion. I could probably go on and on about this, but we're right on time, actually, to segue into Laurence's talk. So I want to introduce to you my dear friend who's been providing fantastic responses throughout already, Professor Laurence Albige, who's full professor and chair of medical oncology at Gustave Roussy. Uh, Laurence? Thank you, Monty. Well, thank you uh, to all of you. So what we've heard is that the first-line setting has evolved a lot. And initially, we were considering in-sequence single-agent TKI and then moving on to either nivolumab or capazantinib using both of them, one after the other. But now that we're using combination regimen, if we look at the guidelines, what they say is that after a combination of IO, doublet IO, we want to use one TKI, and, and we can actually consider several of them we'll have in this discussion. And in patients who had received a TKI IO regimen, well, basically, we're going to use the TKI that we did not use in frontline. So our first-line setting is impacting the strategy. I'm not going to list all the studies that have been developed in sequence after first line. What we have to date are either studies with a single agent strategy or combination strategy. And so I will highlight some of them to depict what's the landscape and where we stand and how we choose our treatment. So Tivozanib was among the first agent to generate clean, randomized data in heavily pretreated patient population. What we do know with this agent is that compared to an active regimen, sorafenib, it demonstrated progression-free survival. We also know that there has been a lot of discussion around the overall survival, but what is important to stress with this drug is its safety profile. It is well established that tivozanib has a great safety profile in the way that if we're able to manage the hypertension, the high blood pressure, it's likely that this agent is associated with better uh, side effect profile than the first generation TKI that we used in the past. However, most of the data with tivozanib were not in patients who had failed combination therapy first line. So this is exactly what we tried to do in the Cabo Point study. That's a non-randomized phase two that uh, we presented last year at ASCO-GU. And it's a clear, or I would say clean study, pure second line setting, two cohorts, one in patient who failed nivolumab, biplimab, second cohort in patient who failed IUTKI, uh, irrespective of um, any regimen. And so the patient would receive cabozantinib as second line. So, of course, the front line was not cabonivo. Uh, but what I want to highlight here is that in this study, it's a small uh, phase two, what we are seeing is a response rate of cabozantinib across the different strategy in the range of 30%. If your patient has not been exposed to a prior TKI, the response rate is a bit more above 30%, almost 32%. If your patient had had prior TKI IO strategy, namely axidinib pembrolizumab or axidinib avelumab, for instance, the response rate 
dropped a little to 25%. But we do have activity of cabozantinib, including in patients who had failed prior TTI-IO regimen. What about combination therapy? So uh, we have this phase one that is obviously a selected patient population of the combination of lenvatinib plus pembrolizumab. What this story is telling us is that it seems that having pembrolizumab on top of lenvatinib may add something in terms of response rate because the response rate is very high. But you could tell me, well, we don't have lenvatinib single agent here, so we cannot really compare or know the contribution of the component. And so where we need here is randomized data. There are two studies that have been developed and uh, tried to tackle the question. The first one has been launched on the ground of this tivozanib plus nivolumab. We call that T-NIVO-1 study. It's a, it's a phase 1-2 study that included patients either naive or pretreated, and for the purpose of today, I'm just going to focus on the pretreated, where there is a clear activity of the combination of tivozanib plus nivolumab. And this actually has been taken to a phase three study that is fully enrolled, randomizing patients between tivozanib single agents versus tivozanib plus nivolumab. This study will answer the question of the added value of nivolumab in patients who failed prior exposure to several lines of therapy, including at least one immune checkpoint. We do know uh, that we may have part of the answer thanks to CONTACT-03 that Monty referred earlier. So CONTACT-03 has been presented last year. It's a very important trial. Why is that? Because it's the first trial which was randomizing patients who had failed at least one VGFTI and one immune checkpoint inhibitor, with the prior line being the immune checkpoint inhibitor. And what is interesting here is to see, do we know if adding atezolizumab on top of cabozantinib brings something? The short answer is no. It's not adding, because the study did not met the endpoints of progression-free survival nor the overall survival signal. So... That means that as of now, 2023, we're not supposed to have PDL1 inhibition on top of your TKI in a patient who had previously failed an immune checkpoint inhibitor. Monty touched on the non-clear cell part. My feeling is that it's too little numbers to answer the question, but you could argue that atezolimizumab may not be the compound you want to choose there, and this is why TNIVO2 study is very important, either to confirm or to show something different. Now, last ISMO uh, was the opportunity for us to present this study. First, randomized study with a new mechanism of action, Belzutifan, we spoke about today uh, during the meeting. So HIF-2-alpha inhibitor. Very important. Why? Because we know this agent has activity in VHL, is well-tolerated, and had demonstrated activity in pre-treated patients. And that's the registration study. That's the pivotal study. The patients that were enrolled were patients with clear cell RCC who had previously failed several lines of therapy that had to include at least one VGFTI and one immune checkpoint inhibitor. And patients were randomized between Belzutifan or Everlimus. We can debate on the Everlimus comparator arm, and, and David, I'm sure, can throw some uh, information here. Um, the question is, how do you pick the comparator here? This is a heavily pretreated patient population, we didn't put the slides fully here, but 85% of patients were in third or fourth line, heavily pretreated patient population. To put the long story short, the co-primary endpoints are 
progression-free survival and overall survival study met a significance for progression-free survival. There is no difference in median if you pay attention, but look at the shape of the curves and look at the hazard ratio of 0.75. Over time, we clearly have this a significant signal of belzotifan doing better than an active comparator Everlimus in those uh, heavily pretreated patients. With regard to overall survival, what we have is a difference in median, a hazard ratio that is less than one, but not reaching significance. So there will be further follow-up for this study. What this study also showed us, and it's not on the slide, is a response rate clearly favoring belzutifan, as well as a quality of life, its patient-reported outcome assessed by two different scales, clearly favoring belzutifan. So that study is very likely to change our practice and positionate belzutifan in as a new mechanism of action in patients who fail at least one VGFTKI and one immune checkpoint inhibitor. And this agent is being combined because it's well tolerated. So it's being combined with potent VGFTKI. We've seen data with cabozantinib presented by Tony Schwery. This is data with lenvatinib that were presented at last ASCO. And so obviously this agent is of interest and there might be a rationale to have an let's say, upstream, downstream um, double blockade of the HIF pathway. HIF inhibition as well as VEGF inhibition. This is what we're seeing with carbozantinib plus belzutifan and here belzutifan plus lenvatinib. I'm going to switch gears for the, the last part of this discussion before we have more time to interact. One thing I haven't seen in practice is um, for a patient that we are not able to put in complete response in the front line, or for a patient that achieved great response, one ISM is how we can enhance, how we can improve our patient experience. And there is something that is a work ongoing as what if we could skip the IV part and move on to the subcutaneous administration of our immune checkpoint inhibitor? This is being done with the different PD-1 uh, that you know, and that's an example with nivolumab. The reason why I'm stressing that is that we are now getting to maturity of this study. It's a randomized phase 3, checkmate 67T, which enroll patient with clear cell RCC. So it's not all tumor types, it's clear cell RCC, who were, received, who were requiring a nivolumab therapy. So in the approval setting when the study was launched was in a second line, basically. And patients were randomized between what used to be the nivolumab administration format, 3 milligrams per kg every two weeks, versus subcutaneous administration of nivolumab. And that administration is every four weeks. The co-primary endpoint for this study is basically pharmacodynamic endpoint. But the key secondary endpoints is, of course, what is meaningful for physicians like you and me. It's, are we sure we're doing as well? with sub-Q administration than with IV. And so this study has fully enrolled and will be presented in a coming meeting. And I think this is important because it has the impact to change the life of our patient. Also, I'm head of Medong in my institution, and so I'm in charge of the infusion room. And of course, five minutes of sub-Q versus 30 minutes of IV does change the game in terms of consumption of, you know, like the seats and so on in your infusion room. 
So it has an impact for the patient, but it also has an impact in how we can organize the care in our hospitals. So I think this is very meaningful to me, and I look forward to seeing those results. So I'm going to change there and head back to you for the case. Oh, that was terrific. As, as usual, Laurent's terrific job. I, a round of applause, guys. That was fantastic. Um, so, you know, we're going to get back to cases here. And I know in our patient question, uh, panel questions, we didn't really sort of offer up the option of belzutifan, but I want us to pretend we're in a landscape where belzutifan is approved and you have access to it, okay? So this is a patient who has metastatic clear cell RCC. For whatever reason, you know, you end up choosing cabazantinib and nivolumab as your frontline therapy option, okay? Now this patient starts to progress, and let's envision a scenario where they've got symptomatic metastases, okay? Uh, Dave, I'm going to turn to you first. What would you choose as your next line of treatment? Oh, until the last sentence, I would have said belzutifan <laughs> because it offers a good disease control for about half the patients with very favorable toxicity profile, which, as Laurent said, translates into excellent quality of life. But if they have symptomatic progression, the, one of the weak points of the belzutifan story is it takes a little while to have its full effect. Um, oftentimes three to six months before you see a full response, whereas with a TKI, you're going to get that response usually within the first cycle. So based on the data, you know, giving someone tavozinib in that setting makes good sense. I tend not to use so much of the uh, LAN-EV. I would probably go with TiVo in someone who'd failed one prior TKI. So Great. Thank you for choosing one response there. I appreciate that, Dave. That was perfect. <laughs> yeah. It feels like a, a criticism was, was in there. <laughs> no, no, you're, you're doing amazing. So, Laurence, I'm going to turn to you now. I'm going to permute the situation just slightly. Uh, and let's, let's say this patient was progressing on Cabonevo, was asymptomatic, but had relatively rapid tumor kinetics. So you, you have at your disposal two sets of scans six weeks apart, and you see that a liver lesion has gone from two to six centimeters. You see the lung metastasis has gone from one to four centimeters. What would you do in that scenario? So asymptomatic, but relatively rapid progression. Um, so I think if I have that rapid progression, especially the measure you gave in the liver, I, I would like to stick to a TKI uh, because I'm afraid that the patient will be symptomatic uh, shortly. Uh, if I didn't have such a kinetic, that's perfectly a patient where I would like to use belzutifan. Um, so um, the thing with belzutifan is that it's not like taking time to be active, but it's not reaching the same response rate as we've, you commonly see with um, potent VGFTTIs. Okay? So, and the uh, upfront PD rate is quite high. One of the reasons why the upfront PD rate is high is from my perspective, is that it was conducted in fourth-line setting, as I said. So we have many patients that are clearly now VGF-TKI resistant and are able to grow into their disease, irrespective of the agent that you will be using. Um, I'm, over the course of the uh, Belzutifan study, we enrolled patients third, fourth-line, but also earlier on in the disease. And my clinical feeling is that the earlier I was able to use that, the better it was. Um, so um, because... Once again, you want to use this asset when the patient is not too symptomatic. Got it. No, that's totally fair. And, and I'll just press a little bit further in that scenario. Which TKI would you use? Patients progressed on Cabo Nevo. We could make up a scenario where they've got Nevo Ipi followed by Cabo. So you're in that setting with rapid regression. Which TKI based regimen would you choose? Okay, so I would be in the U.S. I would use Leniv. 
uh, uh, in Europe, I can't. So I'm, I'm using accidentum with those escalation. Accidentum. Okay, got it. Uh, and Dave, how about you? Any perspective on that? I would give TiVo again to that. There's more data. There's a randomized phase three versus a real drug in serafinib with good tolerability. The LEN-EV story is a good one, but it's a large phase two. I don't think the data is as strong, you know, and the EV gets in the way. LEN is a great drug. I'm not sure what adding Everlimus really does. I totally agree with you on that. I've never known what that relative contribution is. I've always kind of struggled with that there. Um, so I'm going to change the scenario a little bit, as, as you can imagine. And we're going to take a patient who's gone from Nevo-Ipi, okay, front line, to Cabazandum second line. They show up in your practice, and they're ready for third-line therapy. They actually have a relatively asymptomatic progression. Let's paint a slightly different picture. Let's say over that eight-week period of scans, you see a liver lesion grow from one to two centimeters. You see three pulmonary nodules grow from one to one and a half centimeters. So there's, you know, some unfavorable kinetics there, but not terrible. Um, and that patient has a hemoglobin of eight and a half. Okay. What would you choose for that patient in that setting? Not a problem, Dr. Paul. We'll go with belzutifan and erythropoietin. Because erythropoietin works. If, so if the, one of the on-target side effects of belzutifan is anemia, which is due to decreased erythropoietin production. So you can start belzutifan with a hemoglobin of 8-point-something. And if it drops, just give erythropoietin and it bounces right back up. So let me ask you a question. A patient goes home with that recommendation, comes back the next day, and says to you, Dr. McDermott, gosh, I read online that, you know, epoetin really is going to drive my cancer. How do you respond to them there? No data for that on any kidney cancer trial yet. Can you reassure me that it doesn't? Uh, we haven't seen it happen, you know, and I, so it, EPO works great. Same question for you, Lawrence. Can you assure a patient that giving EPO in this setting doesn't necessarily counteract the benefit from Belzutifan? And how would you say that to a patient? No easy questions here. No, no, it's not an easy question. I was trying to uh, find the right wording. I think it's important to stress to the patient that there is a hypothetical risk on one hand, and the other hand, there is metastatic kidney cancer that requires the most efficient systemic therapy available. And so it's a no-brainer to me that in one case, we are um, having doubt from like more than a decade when I was a medical oncology student uh, <laughs> from breast cancer. In the other case, we have metastatic kidney cancer requiring systemic therapy for which we have active agents. So it's a no-brainer. Yeah, this, this is one of those scenarios that I really struggle with. I've come out on the other side of the pendulum where, and you know, I, I don't think there's a right answer here, where you know, just because of the paucity of data and lack of understanding we have on what EPO is really doing here, if that an question gets answered, I would be willing to take on that approach. Otherwise, I'm offering TKI. Uh, Monty, this person would be lucky to die of a second cancer. As Laurent said, what they're going to die from is their kidney cancer. Mm -hmm. So I understand we obviously need to study this. We need to watch it. In the adjuvant setting, it makes an even bigger yeah. concern. because So bringing belzutifan to the adjuvant setting where patients don't have cancer and maybe on it for a while, you know, that's a good place to worry. But in the metastatic setting, it's the first cancer that's going to be the problem, not the hypothetical one that they get five years later. So, Monty, I just want to take you on, on your sequence here. You were saying nivolumab, ipilimab, then cabozantinib, then what would be next? So it could be tivozanib, it could be belzutifan in this situation. Um, 
I not necessarily have to use cabozantinib as my pure second-line regimen after nivolumab, ipilimab. Some of our patients don't have uh, rapidly progressive disease. I know cabozantinib is going to work well. That's the CaboPoint study. That's CONTACTO3 study where cabozantinib works well. But I, I actually would be more comfortable using that as a third-line strategy. And this is a patient where I'm happy using axitinib as a second-line and saving cabozantinib afterwards. Okay, got it, got it. And can I push a little further on that? What about Bell's second line? 12% of patients in 005 had, so Bell, well know. No, 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 I like that question. Um, Bell's Vitifan has been developed after IO and TKI. And so after nivolumab, ipilimab, you haven't been exposed to a TKI. Very good. Very, you, you guys are good. I can't stump you tonight. This is real. I'm trying my best here, but these guys are really good. Um, if it's okay for the last, we only have about two minutes left. I'm going to turn to some of the questions that the audience has asked here. Um, and I think we've actually covered a lot of this. Um, uh, this is a, a pretty rapid fire one, Dave. I'm going to throw this to you. Is there any age above which you wouldn't advise dual IO therapy? Uh, no, um, we don't see any increased side effects as people get older. Uh, as long as the patient's motivated. I think one thing that, though, that can happen is if, if people run into side effects from any of these regimens and they have other comorbidities, sometimes those can become a problem. So you have to educate patients with other, Ill, with other issues, um, but not necessarily based on their age. Yeah, I, I would even be stronger. I think it's amazing an elderly patient because you don't have the TKI toxicity, which sometimes is hard with elderly and so uh, in France, we're running a carbonivo uh, elderly uh, trial in frontline. But still, my experience with nivolumab, ipilimab is great. And there is nothing. We looked at cytokines in elderly, and there's no reason for, for this patient not to, be, not to respond. The only challenge is to make sure they will come to your clinic if they have side effect. So it's not only training the patient, but also the family around the patient to make sure they're going to show up if they have side effect. Amazing. That, so I, I didn't know. I always walk away from these sessions learning something. That's very interesting. What a great study, Capo Nevo and older patients. I just wanted to thank you all for joining us this evening. This has been a really fun and engaging session. And Dave and Laurence, thank you for letting me have some fun with these cases and appreciate everyone here's participation as well. Thank you. This activity is certified by PVI, Peerview Institute for Medical Education. Remember to download the slides and practice aids. Thank you for listening. Download materials and complete the post-test for instant credit at peerview.com forward slash DJA860. This educational activity is supported through medical education grants from Aveo Pharmaceuticals Incorporated, Bristol-Myers Squibb, and Exelixis Incorporated.